Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Little Gitmo is the term used for communication management units, which are segregated sections of prisons for domestic political prisoners. Surreptitiously and illegally established, these communication management units restrict prisoners' communication in a number of draconian ways, including prohibiting contact with the press. While a vast number of prisoners in these units do not speak English as a native language, all communication with visitors must be in English and is always monitored. Communication in person and over the phone is drastically limited, and in a creative effort at demoralizing the prisoner population housed in these units, all communication is through glass. The prisoners in CMUs cannot touch their loved ones. Some men have had children born that they have never once been allowed to touch. The vast majority of these men are Muslim. In an effort to avoid legal challenge, other deemed undesirable prisoners were moved to the CMUs. Prisoner rights, animal and environmental activists. Outside of Little Gitmo, the terrorization of activists is rife, seeking to need a narrative in which we understand eco-terrorism as the conduct of environmental activists rather than the rapacious destruction of our earth for the myopic profit of the few that these activists are fighting on our behalf against. Despite the horrendous domestic terrorism of anti-abortion and anti-gay groups, animal activists are solely targeted with a terrorism law drafted exclusively to prohibit their conduct. The Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, the AETA stacks on harsher criminal penalties for already criminal conduct if the purpose is to interfere with or damage an animal enterprise. It's expansive, vague, and expressly focused on the belief of the offender. It should be deemed unconstitutional, and unfortunately has not, and continues to hold a chilling effect. That's the stick. Then there's the slap. Strategic lawsuits against public participation are filed to intimidate activists and divert their attention, energy, and resources to defending frivolous suits. While 28 states have some form of anti-slap legislation, the majority is weak, and more states should follow the California model, which is expansive, holds discovery, and provides for mandatory attorney fees. In the interim, more slaps are filed, and with a recent twist. Rico. The Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act enacted against the Mafia has been filed in numerous complaints as heinous as imaginative. From Chevron suing human rights attorney Stephen Dozinger, who successfully obtained an $8 billion cleanup judgment for environmental atrocities in Ecuador, to energy transfer partners suing Greenpeace, indigenous activists, and even an entire environmental movement, this racketeering law has been abused as a new vexatious litigation tactic. Rachel Mirapol, senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights, has spent her career fighting these egregious infringements of our rights. I spoke to Rachel about these pernicious issues and the cases she has brought to fight against them. Welcome to Gravity, Rachel. Thank you. It's great to be on. So you are a senior staff attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights and have been the lead counsel in some pertinent cases, some of which we will be discussing today. But first, I wanted to ask you if you may please tell our audience about the Center for Constitutional Rights and your work there. Sure. Um, so the Center for Constitutional Rights was founded in 1966 by lawyers supporting civil rights activists. And ever since then, you know, we've worked in a wide variety of substance areas, domestically and internationally, but we like to think of ourselves as movement lawyers. So that means that we go where social justice movement lawyers are, and we try to partner with activists, 
rather than just, you know, focusing on litigation in the courts that's going to push precedent. We ask, you know, how are the ways that lawyers can facilitate activists' access to power, um, can help raise the voices of communities under siege, um, and can help ensure um, that the law operates, you know, as a tool for um, as a tool to seek justice, not as a tool of oppression. Fantastic. I'd like to turn to the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act and its predecessor, the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, as a follow-up from our previous episode concerning ag-gag laws, a number of which you have been litigating the constitutionality of in court. In 2005, before the enactment of the revamped AEPA as the AETA, John Lewis, then Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, testified before a congressional committee that the primary domestic terrorism threat was the, and I quote, eco-terrorism animal rights movement, even though incredibly in the same testimony, he admitted that no deaths or personal injuries could be attributed to the same movement. And even when there were numerous deaths caused by various right-wing groups, including anti-abortion and anti-gay groups at the time. How does the AETA operate to curtail legitimate protest and whistleblowing, and can it criminalize the actions of peaceful activists as terrorism and make them subject to the same penalties? Yeah, really important questions. Thank you. Um, so the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act was passed in 2006, um, and it's a federal criminal law. Um, that prohibits damaging or causing the loss of real or personal property belonging to an animal enterprise. Um, and an animal enterprise is basically any business or nonprofit that uses or sells animal products. So that's basically every non-vegan enterprise that we can think of. <laughs> um, so for many years, we have been concerned um, that um, activists within the animal rights movements will be sort of chilled from, you know, purely protected and lawful First Amendment activity because much of the activity that activists do, you know, is intended to sort of damage the property of animal enterprises. Um, and that's intangible property, right? When people organize to protest, um, you know, a store that sells fur, the point is that we'd like them to not be able to sell as much fur. Um, activists intend to damage the business's bottom line, right, to make them lose profit. Um, and losing profit, causing a store to lose profit, shouldn't be punishable as a criminal act. Um, this is part of, you know, a historic um, uh, tradition of protest that, you know, can include boycotts, that can include targeting businesses directly to get them to stop doing the wrong thing. Um, so shortly after the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act was passed, we started to get, you know, calls and, and emails from activists who were really worried that um, this action, that the law actually prohibited um, the kind of activism that they were involved in. Um, we ended up representing the first four activists who were charged under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act um, and got the charges against them dismissed, though the court did not rule that the law was unconstitutional in itself. Um, we then worked with um, some animal rights activists who were concerned that the law would be applied against them in the future for activity like 
um, you know, uh, planning a protest against um, against an organization that or a store that sells animal products. Um, and we asked the court to, you know, we asked the court to look at the law and interpret what it actually means. Um, what does it mean to prohibit um, causing damage or loss to an animal enterprise? And what's, what's so interesting is that in our early days of challenging this law, you know, every court that looked at the law thought it meant something different. Um, we had some courts saying, well, clearly this only applies to, um, in t- to tangible property, you know, to, to causing physical property damage, although it doesn't say that anywhere in the law itself. Um, we had other courts not really deciding what it applied to, but just looking at sort of the way it was being used against individuals in front of us. Um, we finally got a de- uh, sort of the most definitive um, statement we were able to get from a court came in, in the Johnson case. And this was a prosecution of two animal rights activists who released mink from a fur farm um, and, and spray-painted uh, Liberation is Love on, on the, the wall of a building. Um, and in that case, we um, challenged the constitutionality of the law, um, arguing that it would chill protected First Amendment speech and protest. Um, and the court ruled that the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act doesn't apply to causing intangible losses, that Congress couldn't have meant to prohibit, you know, causing a business to lose profits. So I think that's really important. I think it's really important for us to look now at, you know, what um, an appellate, a federal appellate court has said about what the law prohibits and what it what it doesn't, so that we don't unnecessarily chill people in the animal rights community from from getting out there and protesting um, as as much as they possibly can, um, as is protected by the First Amendment. Um, Now, what the law still does do, and and this is very problematic as well, um, the law punishes as an act of terrorism you know, causing damage to property, basically. So while we have a statement from a court that, you know, First Amendment protest isn't isn't um, prohibited under the law, it is clear that, you know, for example, if an activist were to throw a rock through a window of a Whole Foods um, and, you know, uh, maybe they found the address of that Whole Foods by looking on their cell phone, um, to qualify as interstate commerce there, um, you know, then maybe that act of vandalism, which is, which is nothing more than vandalism, could be punished as an act of terrorism because the target sells animal products. Now, of course, we know not just any act of vandalism would actually be prosecuted as an Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act violation. It's acts of vandalism by animal rights activists only that would really, um, you know, where it could seem possible that we'd see that kind of prosecution. And that's incredibly troubling to think, first of all, that individuals who, you know, commit low-level property crime could be, could be targeted as activists based on, to be targeted as terrorists um, based on the motivation behind their action but also that we, we would continue to equate that kind of activism with terrorism, which, which it simply isn't. Um, and we made that argument as well in these Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act challenges. Um, we argued that it violates due process to call a crime terrorism when it bears absolutely no relation to anything that you know, the, the public thinks of when we think of terrorism, when it doesn't pose a risk to, to life. Um, and in fact, when in general, 
um, these types of politically motivated crimes are aimed at reducing violence. It's about just about reducing violence against animals rather than people. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had any legal success with that claim. Um, the courts have all rejected it. Um, but I still think it's something that we have to talk about um, and educate people around. I don't think that your average person would agree um, that these kind of um, minor property damage offenses are uh, properly prosecuted as terrorism, regardless of their opinions on, on animal rights. I think it's particularly problematic. As you said, these are low uh, property crimes. They're not acts of violence. And, and also, I find it incredible that the court denied a content-based restriction because the purpose is so important. And even in the Johnson decision, I noted that the court pointed out that uh, teenagers that killed over 900 chickens in Fresno were not subject to the AETA because, one, they didn't cross state lines, which, okay, um, I take that, but also incredibly because they killed the chickens for no reason. So is the court stating that you can go and create all kinds of property damage and violence to animals and so forth as you want in an animal enterprise, as long as you don't actually release animals or do anything to protect animals because then you're a terrorist under the Animal Enterprise Terrorist Act and that's not a content-based restriction because I'm really confused. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you're so right to point that out. I mean, first of all, it was a pretty shocking line in the decision um, to sort of imply that, you know, that killing animals for no reason is somehow a lesser offense than releasing animals because of your political views. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, what's so strange about that part of the decision is that the government has always defended the AETA by arguing you know, anyone could be prosecuted under this law. It's not aimed, I mean, it was motivated by um, the perception that animal rights activists present this, this huge threat um, to corporate interests. Um, but what the government has always said is that regardless of what motivated the law, the law is neutral on its face. It can be applied to anyone who, you know, causes damage to an animal enterprise, regardless of their motivation. And yet we have a judge who's just sort of read the text of the law, who somehow takes away from that the reality that the law is only ever used against animal rights activists. And of course, if we look at the history of the way of these prosecutions, that is certainly true. Um, there's no question that the people who face Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act charges are animal rights activists, even though those are, of course, not the only people who, you know, damage the property of animal enterprises. So how can the court then <clears throat> uphold the law as not violating the First Amendment and, and also not violating the 14th Amendment if it's only applied to people that hold particular beliefs? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a really good question as well. And, you know, one can imagine um, after, you know, if there were lots more prosecutions in the future, which thankfully there haven't been, um, trying to bring a claim challenging the way the law has been used um, and sort of trying to bring a claim centered around discriminatory enforcement of the law. Um, we didn't have a claim like that in any of our initial challenges. We were challenging the law on its face. 
saying the law as written is unconstitutional and should be struck down. So it really might just be that, you know, courts haven't considered that kind of discriminatory enforcement claim yet, and and they could in the future. Um, And that's why I think it's really important for us to be paying attention to who's actually being prosecuted under the law. And as I said, thankfully, it, it hasn't been used frequently. Yeah, and it seems that perhaps, and and maybe I'm <laughs> way off the line here, but pe- perhaps um, the law is not so much to not so much on the books to actually prosecute people, even though there there have been prosecutions under the law, and and unfortunately people are in prison for a very very long time um, under the law, but. Um, perhaps the main aim of the law is to chill activists because as it's written and, and thankfully in the, the Johnson decision and even in Blum, if you read the court defending the law and saying that um, the, uh, the view of the law that you advance that is too vague because interfere with an animal enterprise can mean <laughs> a civil protest that aims to... Um, interfere with the business, stall the business and cause economic damage is not something that um, is a reasonable interpretation of the law, even though that's exactly what it seems, because under the previous act, the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, I believe it said physical destruction and they deleted that. So it seems, okay, you just expanded it. And, uh, and now just having it on the books and having, I mean, if I were an animal rights activist, I would be wary what what the law really means and when it could be applied and might change my conduct and my association with people because I believe there's a conspiracy charge there too with uh, activists that um, might then imperil me by putting me under the AETA or am I being too paranoid? (laughs) No, I don't think you're being paranoid at all. I mean, I think think the law functions on two levels. I think First of all, it's absolutely right that part of the purpose here has to be chilling animal rights activism. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't see any way around, around that, um, especially given the name Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which was a change from the Animal Enterprise Protection Act. It was a, a change that didn't have to be made. Um, and, and that is a chilling thing to have to think about, you know, it's one thing to face sort of a trespass arrest for one's, you know, nonviolent protest activity facing, you know, federal terrorism charges is a really different thing. And I know we'll talk probably a little later about how um, some folks who have been, um, who have faced these charges end up being, you know, treated in prison when, when they, if they do go to prison. Um, But I think it operates in another way too, not just about sort of chilling activists, but also, in telling a story to the public, to the public who, you know, maybe doesn't know much about the animal rights movement, but, you know, is starting to see a lot of, a lot of news about people being vegan or vegetarian or, you know, starting to think about these issues for the first time, that calling these activists terrorists sends a message to, to the whole public as well, that, you know, this is a fringe movement. Um, you don't have to worry about listening to them. You don't need to second guess the choices you're making in your life because they're just a bunch of crazies, you know? So it actually serves to further marginalize this movement that is already marginalized in um, kind of the larger left and, and progressive community in a way that, who knows, but it, it feels very purposeful. 
Right. And uh, when when the government goes after one movement, uh, whatever you believe about that movement, it therefore gets the ability to go after other movements and perhaps uh, a movement that another person that doesn't care about animal rights activists might care about and so forth. And it's all interlinked. And actually, the um, it's now environmental activists that are also stigmatized as terrorists. And it's not just by the government, but it's by the private sector. The private sector has recently tried to initiate suits that I can't help laughing because it's just uh, reading the complaints. It's so absolutely ridiculous that they're absurd corporate slap suits against environmental activists. Uh, Resolute Forest Products sued Greenpeace for RICO, a racketeer-influenced and Corruption Organization Act violations and defamation. And then the same claims were made by energy transfer partners against Greenpeace and a number of other defendants, including perplexingly the Earth First entire environmental movement, which <laughs> I don't, I mean, I, I just have even no words for it. And I'm not sure if I've read a more creative pleading than the complaint filed by energy transfer partners. The same company that hired Tiger Swan to infiltrate the protest movement at Standing Rock to claim that the protesters of the Dakota Access Pipeline were a criminal enterprise violating a number of federal laws, which the majority in the complaint were amethyst conduct by unnamed individuals, not named defendants. May you please tell our audience of the issues in this absolutely ridiculous case? Yeah, well, ridiculous is the key word here, I think. So, you know, Energy Transfer Partners, which is the partial owner of the Dakota Access Pipeline, filed this racketeering lawsuit, a RICO lawsuit, against um, Greenpeace, as you say, the Earth First movement, um, some named activists and unnamed others, and, and included allegations about a whole host of other environmental nonprofits and, and groups, um, basically claiming that all of the resistance at Standing Rock was a racketeering conspiracy meant to defraud environmental donors um, uh, by pretending that uh, fossil fuel extraction is driving climate change by spreading sort of lies about the environmental harm of pipelines, when in reality, according to energy transfer partners, pipelines help the environment because they um, decrease uh, fossil fuels being moved by trucks on roads and, and pipelines are better. Um, and, and that all of this resistance was not sort of individual actions of solidarity um, in combination with the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but instead was this conspiracy spearheaded by Greenpeace, right, to organize all these other groups to, um, to fake sort of protest activity in the name of defrauding its own donors. Um, so absolutely bananas theory. Um, yeah. Perhaps the most bananas allegations are against Earth First, um, uh, and ETP alleged that Earth First funded sort of violent activity at Standing Rock with $500,000 that Earth First just happened to have hanging around. We all know all those wealthy Earth Firsters. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and that, um, 
and that that funded sort of eco-terrorism at Standing Rock. So basically the theory of Energy Transfer Partners case is that everybody who was involved in Standing Rock, maybe even, you know, all the people who sort of checked in at Standing Rock on Facebook two years ago when there was that call for solidarity, that we are all conspirators because we all um, pretend to care about the environment when we're actually just trying to defame corporations that are, that are doing their best to protect it. Um, so the Center for Constitutional Rights represented the Earth First Journal, actually, in this case, um, because the Earth First Journal got um, hauled into the case um, when Energy Transfer Partners tried to serve the complaint on Earth First by mailing it to the offices of the Earth First Journal. So, so for people who don't know, you know, Earth First is not an organization of any sort. It's a movement based on certain principles, um, including sort of direct action in protection of the environment and sort of no compromise with corporate polluters and corporations who are destroying the Earth. Um, and uh, anyone can use the Earth First name, and, and many, many diverse groups do, um, if they believe in Earth First sort of central tenets. Um, so it's, it's really a philosophy in a lot of ways. Um, of course, you can't serve a complaint on a philosophy. It's <laughs> hard to find the address for a philosophy. Um, so apparently when um, Kasowitz Benson, who represents um, Energy Transfer Partners, was trying to serve the complaint, they just, you know, I guess must have Googled around and found the address for um, the Earth First Journal, which, which is an entity. It is a small radical environmental magazine um, that, that reports on um, activities by Earth Firsters and other radical environmentalists. Um, and, and so it actually tried to serve the complaint on, Earth First, on the Earth First Journal, which would have sort of pulled in the journal and put them in this impossible position of having to sort of defend the actions of thousands of individuals across the globe who it has no contact with. Um, happily, we um, were able to convince the court to dismiss the claims against Earth First, um, explaining that, you know, Earth First is a philosophy, not an entity. And even if you could sue Earth First, you can't sue Earth First by sending, by serving the complaint on the Earth First journal. Um, or Energy Transfer Partners then amended their complaint to add new individuals, um, including sort of indigenous activists who were at Standing Rock. Um, I mean, I really can't imagine what they did beyond sort of looking for the names of anyone who was connected with Standing Rock and then adding them to the complaint, regardless of the individual's um, connection. So, for example, they added allegations against Crystal Tubles. Um, who's a Northern Cheyenne Oglala um, activist um, who uh, they allege served as a media liaison at Standing Rock. And, you know, if you do some Internet searches, you'll find her name connected with a few documents coming out of Standing Rock, sort of calls for people to, to come out and stand in solidarity, completely protected by the First Amendment. Yet, according to Energy Transfer Partners, she conspired with Greenpeace to do all these terrible things to defame Energy Transfer Partners um, and to sort of damage their, their business. Um, happily, the judge also dismissed the claims against Crystal. Um, but then Energy Transfer Partners went and filed a new lawsuit, this time in state court. Um, so this kind of like... Uh, harassment by litigation. Um, it's what we refer to as slap suits, uh, mm -hmm. strategic litigation against public participation. And the idea is that 
you know, the, the businesses filing cases like this, they, they know they're not going to win at the end of the day. Um, that's not that's not even the goal. Really, the point is to distract activists um, and organizations from the incredibly important work they're doing by forcing them to divert resources to defending against these frivolous lawsuits um, and also to chill others from getting involved. Um, so when we face suits like this, I think it's, it's incredibly important, first of all, to ensure that you know, activists and organizations who are being targeted um, are provided with free or low-cost legal representation because we cannot allow the people who are doing this essential work to um, have to spend their time and their money fighting these ridiculous lawsuits. Um, I think it's also really important when activists are slapped with lawsuits to try to actually elevate the work that those activists or those organizations are doing because the point of the lawsuit is to silence them, right? So I like to talk, you know, whenever I talk about this case, I like to urge people who are listening to, you know, go to the Earth First Journal's website, consider subscribing to the magazine. Um, if Energy Transfer Partners wants to shut these people up so much, that probably means they're saying something we should all be listening to. Um, and the same with Crystal Tubles. You know, she works around the issue of sort of indigenous rights and youth development and anti-militarism. She's doing amazing work at that intersection. So um, if you want to, you know, actually harm energy transfer partners, look into the work she's doing, support the work she's doing, because that is the best way to push back against more of these suits being filed against more activists. Um, I also wanted to... Um, say that, you know, one of the ways that as a legal community, um, we're trying to organize around um, these kind of slap suits is, is just to be in conversation with each other more. Um, so the Center for Constitutional Rights and lots of other organizations, including Greenpeace and Earth Rights International, um, have founded something called Protect the Protest Task Force. Um, and, you know, we've got a great website that folks should look up. Um, and basically, this is just a network of groups who work around these issues to ensure that when organizations and activists do face these types of, of slap lawsuits, that we can make sure that we can find the representation, that we can elevate the issues that they are working on, that we can disincentivize um, corporations like Energy Transfer Partners from filing more of these ridiculous lawsuits. That's fantastic. And it's absolutely necessary. And you and you are right. It's, I don't think the aim is to win the lawsuit. It seems that even if you read the complaint, it's totally contradictory. For instance, with the allegation against um, Crystal Tubles, uh, that she is a violent um, conspirator on the one hand, but they also admit that she's a militant, non-violent advocate. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just crazy. And also with your client, uh, the Earth First Journal, they admit that the Earth First defendant in the action is an unincorporated leaderless association and then they try and serve the earth first journals so uh i mean it's really quite sanctionable co uh, conduct by the attorneys um it's actually a really good exercise for law students i think to um look at how do you <laughs> how do you serve uh, an unincorporated association <laughs> oh no you can't and um and also the fact that you know if you have a terrible lawsuit against you, you have to defend yourself. That That's the problem. As, as terrible as it is, you have to defend yourself, even in this case when you're not even the defendant. <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. 
That's right. And I mean, I think sanctionable is, is, is also a really important word here. Um, you know, we looked at all the various versions of this lawsuit that energy transfer partners filed and, and various, you know, sworn documents that they filed as they were trying to press the case against Earth First Journal and against Crystal Tubals. And, and, and they just, they don't seem to have any care for telling the truth. I mean, none whatsoever. We were able to identify so many misrepresentations in, in these allegations and um, in documents filed about, about our clients. Um, and, and we did actually serve a sanctions motion on energy transfer partners um, and, and their lawyers because of this, saying that, you know, Kasowitz Benson should be sanctioned for this kind of behavior. We can't have lawyers signing pleadings with, with no regard for the truth. Um, now, I, I think as, as a lawyer, I've many times in the past threatened a sanctions motion. I'd never actually served one until mm-hmm. this case. Um, and so that was a really uh, interesting new experience. Um, the court didn't grant sanctions. The court sort of denied it without comment. And, you know, it's really rare to have a judge order sanctions. Um, but I think it's important for us to start asking for them when they are appropriate, like they are in this case. Um, lawyers should feel like they're going to face consequences if they if they sign their names to lawsuits of this nature. Um, I think it's, you know, we can't, um, we can't hold back from, from calling this what it is, which is absolutely sanctionable behavior. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I think it's important to note that it's the same law firm that represented Resolute uh, Forest Products and Energy Transfer Partners, uh, claiming the RICO violations against the environmental movement. The defamation part was that they were claiming environmental effects uh, and the RICO part. And, and this is it, it, this is just so atrocious that there was a criminal enterprise. Everyone was conspiring with all the material misrepresentations. But even there's no there's no proximate damage, even if Greenpeace, they um, is claiming all these untrue things to defraud its own donors. How does that how does that approximately relate to? It's not defrauding Resolute Forest products, is it? Or I mean, it. it, it no, I mean, absolutely. I think they just were trying to come up with some theory to get into court and didn't care that it didn't actually make any sense at all. Um, and and even when lawsuits like this don't make any sense at all, and even when we know that you know they will be dismissed at the end of the day, you're right. People still have to defend themselves, and it's not like that lawsuits get dismissed very quickly either. A lot of times, even for a really outrageous lawsuit based on nothing, it takes years um, to to get it dismissed. Um, And even if you have free lawyers, even if you have great lawyers working with you, you know, that's still a lot of worry Um, and, and a lot of one's attention diverted from, you know, the other important work that, that we, that people need to be doing. Yeah, I, I I agree, and and that's probably the aim of these lawsuits to attack uh, environmental activism because you may be threatened by civil suit, and it is and litigation is never fun. It is um, very taxing. It can be financially taxing, even if it's not financially taxing. It's very time consuming, and it's emotionally taxing to read uh, misrepresentations about you and your conduct in court. So that's very 
unfortunate and I find your earlier comment so pertinent that if these people are being thrown into court because of their activism well they're probably doing something really great and we should pay attention to them <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, that's the, right it's the unintended consequence of filing such frivolous actions in court now I'd like to turn to communication management units so you challenge these in RF. Uh, what are they? And before we turn to how they may operate to infringe constitutional rights, how is their establishment a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act? Sure. So communication management units, they're two CMUs, as we call them, um, in the federal prison system. And these are units that have been sort of designed to limit um, people in prison from communicating with the outside world or the rest of the prison population. Um, so they place very severe restrictions on um, the ability to make phone calls, the ability to have visits. Um, prisoners in the CMU have absolutely no access to contact visitation. So that means that all of their visits happen um, through glass, you know, on a telephone, um, even though generally in the prison system, um, people have access, people can sort of visit with people in a, in a visiting room and, you know, hug when they see each other, hold hands, play cards. It's sort of one of the most important ways that, that people inside maintain relationships with, with their loved ones outside. So communication management restrict units um, severely restrict communication. They limit phone calls, they limit visits. Um, the units monitor um, the communications of all of the individuals in them, so all telephone communication um, and written uh, letters are sort of um, first reviewed by the counterterrorism unit of the Bureau of Prisons um, before they are sort of the communication is allowed to go through. So when the first CMU was created, um, the Bureau of Prisons did it without following um, what the Administrative Procedures Act requires, um, which is notice and comment rulemaking. So basically, whenever the Bureau of Prisons changes how they do things in a, in a major way, um, they have to sort of explain the new rule that they're contemplating. They have to give um, the public a chance to comment on that rule. Um, they have to review those comments, and then they have to issue a final rule which sets forth, you know, how this new policy is going to function. And that's a requirement for all federal agencies, not just the Bureau of Prisons. Um, instead of following those requirements, um, the Bureau of Prisons just opened the communication management unit secretly. Um, without um, any public disclosure of what it planned to do. I mean, we found out about the unit for the first time after we started receiving letters from some of the first sets of prisoners who were moved in there. Um, and what we noticed immediately was that, you know, basically all the men um, who were placed in the units who were, who were writing us for assistance were Muslim. Um, and when we later started to investigate the units, we found an incredible disproportion um, of sort of the population there. I think Muslims account for about 6% of the federal prison um, population. Um, 
but we're more like 65% of the population um, in the communication management unit. So that's, you know, obviously a huge overrepresentation. And that huge overrepresentation persisted as sort of more and more people were sent to the CMU and as the Bureau of Prisons opened a second communication management unit. Um, the first was in Terre Haute, Indiana, and then Marion, Illinois. The Center for Constitutional Rights filed a lawsuit challenging the communication management units uh, back in like 2009, I believe, um, been quite a few years now. We were basically arguing that, um, first of all, the conditions in the units violated um, our clients' First Amendment, Eighth Amendment rights um, because of the way they interfered with you know, communication with family and friends, um, because of how, how cruel it is to um, limit individuals from maintaining family ties. Um, and we also argued that um, the units violate due process um, because of the lack of procedures, um, uh, lack of procedures sort of controlling how an individual is placed in the CMU um, and how they might get out. Um, so after sort of years of discovery and taking depositions of all these prison personnel um, and sort of and and policymakers within the Bureau of Prisons, we were able to discover that, you know, the the CMUs were uh, were open without sort of any set criteria as who should be put in the unit. Um, the criteria was wasn't written down ahead of time. It wasn't shared. Um, instead the Bureau of Prisons began developing criteria about who it should send to these units as it sent people there, saying, oh, well, we seem to be sending a lot of people, um, you know, with, with uh, these type of offenses, so let's create a new criteria to, to cover that group of people, which, of course, is absolutely backwards. Um, there's also, we had a lot of concerns with what we learned about the explanation that people were provided about why they were sent to a CMU. So after an individual is moved to a communication management unit, they receive sort of a one-page notice to inmate of transfer, which is supposed to explain, you know, why the Bureau of Prisons has decided to send them to this unit. What we were able to uncover through, um, you know, a lot of uh, documents from the Bureau of Prisons and, and you know, a, a sort of a lot of deep discovery in the case was that that notice of transfer um, isn't actually written by the person who decides to send an individual to the CMU. Um, that decision maker within the Bureau of Prisons internal process doesn't write down their reason for sending a prisoner to the CMU anywhere. They just don't write it down. So the only way you could possibly know why someone was actually sent to the CMU was asking that person, right, and, and relying on their memory. The explanation that the prisoner is given is instead one of the reasons why the counterterrorism unit recommends that a prisoner should be sent to the CMU. And the counterterrorism unit only provides some of their reasons for recommending someone to be sent to a CMU. So we were able to show that time and again, the counterterrorism unit would actually recommend an individual's placement in a CMU based on, you know, um, their beliefs, um, their protected speech within prison, sometimes their religious beliefs, um, all sorts of other things. And um, the counterterrorism unit wouldn't include those reasons on the notice to transfer. Instead, it would put something else a little bit more innocuous. Like, and they've also, you know, one time violated a prison rule about communication. 
um, when we asked, well, why don't you include all the reasons on the notice of transfer, the only explanation was there's not enough room on the form to provide all the answers. So expand your forms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, you know, you can, you can, one more piece of paper isn't, isn't the end of the world. Um, we also saw major problems in the way prisoners in the CMU are reviewed for potential release from that unit. So when the unit was created, there was no guideline as to sort of how long someone was going to spend there um, and, and how you might earn your way out. Um, but the prisoners themselves were told, if you, you know, if you behave well, if you don't violate any prison rules for a year and a half, um, you can request a transfer to, to a different unit. Um, we learned that actually there was no process even in place for the first three years that the CMU operated um, to consider prisoners for release from a CMU. So they were telling the guys, you know, just, just follow prison rules and we'll consider you for release. But actually they hadn't even set up the system yet to determine whether people could ever possibly be released. And it was only like right at the eve of us filing our lawsuit challenging the units that um, the Bureau of Prisons finally put a sort of potential transfer process in place and started thinking about moving people out of the unit. And, of course, you know, the very first person they move out is someone who was about to sign their name on as a plaintiff in our lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and as, as the case went, you know, went through its phases, um, we started to see more and more and more regular transfers out of the unit, which, of course, it, in itself is a good thing, but doesn't address sort of all the procedural problems with the way these units operate. Right. So I think it's pertinent for our audience to understand some of the individuals, the stories uh, behind these individuals and why they're there, because ostensibly it is a unit where the counterterrorism unit has uh, notified for some reason or other that uh, the person there is a security risk, that they have some ties to terrorism, and there's this ostensibly perceived need to um, limit their communications from the outside. But for instance, uh, Iman Yassin Aref, um, your one of your clients, was convicted of conspiring to materially aid a terrorist plot led by an FBI agent to entrap another person, even though his sole involvement was, as is customary for Imans, to notarize the loan between the FBI agent and the putative terrorist, during which the code word for missile was used repeatedly, but absent any evidence that Aref knew of the code word. (laughs) And he, That's was, right, yeah. he was convicted anyway, which I find outrageous. And then Dr. It is. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no please. Touch, uh, it. Oh, well, I was just going to say that, yes, I mean, Yassine Araf's prosecution in itself is an absolute outrage and injustice. And then to sort of pile on top of that the way he was treated by the Bureau of Prisons is, is really unbelievable. Um, so if we look at what the Bureau of Prisons said when it explained to Yassin why he was being sent to a CMU. You know, he received a notice of transfer that said, um, basically, uh, and I don't have the form in front of me, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm paraphrasing, um, that the Bureau of Prisons has determined that your communications require monitoring 
um, because you have provided significant assistance and communication with JEM, a terrorist organization. Um, now, what's so outrageous about that claim is that, you know, there was no allegation in Mr. Arrest's case that he ever had any communication with any terrorist organization or individual. Rather, he communicated with an FBI informant who was pretending to be a terrorist to entrap all these other guys, right? And so even if you take um, the government's case at its best, the only person that Yassine ever communicated with was an FBI informant, not a terrorist or a terrorist organization. So when, when Mr. Araf was first sort of moved to the CMU and, um, uh, you know, received this notice of transfer, he filed an administrative grievance with the, with the prison system, which is what you have to do, saying, you know, I, I don't understand this. I've never communicated with, with any terrorist or terrorist organization. And they just sent a response back parroting that same information and saying, you know, look at your pre-sentence report. This has the information. And he said, no, my pre-sentence report actually establishes that I didn't have any communication with JEM. And he pursued these administrative requests all the way up through the prison grievance process. And at each step in the way, not a single person responded to the substance of his complaint. You know, they just would parrot the same phrase back to him. It's like it, it, it's this double speak. You know, he asks a simple, clear question. Why am I being sent here? And gets nothing in return. With Mr. Araf, you know, no matter how many times he asked this, this fair and, and logical question, he never got a fair response back. And yet the Bureau of Prisons has defended the CMUs by saying, you know, people in prison have a chance to challenge their placement. They can use the administrative remedy process. That's just fine. Um, if we look at uh, the stories behind some of my other clients who were sent to the CMU. Um, you know, Daniel McGowan is an environmental activist um, who was sent to the CMU um, after he was um, convicted of an arson. Um, and, you know, again, we saw in his notice of transfer um, all these factual errors. And it later became clear that, you know, the 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 Bureau of Prisons, as it's reviewing people um, for placement in a CMU, takes absolutely no care with looking at sort of the details of what they have done and instead is really using these units to isolate political activists, you know, to keep people who um, – have gone to prison for politically motivated crimes or who continue to advocate in lawful ways from behind bars um, to really isolate these people from um, being able to share their views with, with the general prison population and with people on the outside. So for Daniel McGowan, again, you know, his notice of transfer included all these errors about the crime he was convicted of. And just like Yassine Araf, he tried to challenge those um, wrong facts in his notice of transfer. Um, and just like Yassine Araf, um, he received nothing in response. Um, we, you know, we also represent um, a man named Kifa Jayusi, um, who, 
you know, ended up being transferred. He, he was transferred to a CMU um, allegedly based on uh, the crime that he was convicted of. Um, but then when he was inside the unit, um, he served as sort of the unit um, imam for uh, just purposes of leading um, leading Friday prayer service for the other Muslims in the unit. Um, and as part of Friday prayer, he, you know, gave a, like a speech about how important it was for um, the Muslims in the unit to stand together to realize that they were being targeted for their religion, which of course they were. Be the num- they were the numbers, you know, made that completely clear, uh, and urged them to file administrative grievances about it, to complain to the prison about it, to call it what it was, which is religious profiling. Um, and because of that speech. Um, Mr. JUC was denied a transfer out of the communication management unit for years and years, but he was never told that his speech was the reason he was being denied a transfer. He was never told, okay, maybe you can get out of the unit if you just keep your head down and stop, you know, talking about religious freedom inside. You know, that's really what we want you to do. Instead, he's being, you know, told nothing about what he needs to do to to gain release from the unit. Um, So that sort of procedural due process claim is, continues to be, at the heart of our challenge to the communication management units. Um, as the case has worked its way through the courts um, for, you know, almost 10 years now, um, that is the claim that, that continues to be alive. And actually, we're waiting right now on a ruling from the district court judge as to whether the Bureau of Prisons has violated the Constitution based on the procedures it used to, to send our clients to the CMU and, and to fail to review them for release from that unit. I just wanted to go back to just some other people in the CMU. Dr. Rafael Dafir, who ran a charity to send aid to Iraqi children dying from lack of medicine and other necessities under the brutality of the UN sanctions regime. And uh, Ghassan Elashi, who ran a charity to send aid to Palestinian children in the occupied territories, which, according to our government, is um, exactly the same as providing material support for Hamas. Is there a stigmatization later that you are a terrorist and that um, and does this paperwork follow you after the CMU so that it it tends to stigmatize you from society, prevent um, rehabilitation into society once you leave the prison system. And, and is this, again, this terrorization of um, dissent? So uh, we have uh, Muslim profiling and, um, and uh, attacks for, as you said, a religious sermon, um, advocating prisoner rights. Um, and environmental activism, is this the jail for undesirables to say if you um, have undesirable political beliefs, including providing humanitarian assistance to um, you know, enemy states, uh, that, uh, and, and by that I mean children that are dying from um, sanctions in so-called enemy states, that you are undesirable and therefore a terrorist? Is that, is that the link that we've made by the CMUs or that the government has made rather with the CMUs? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the stigma of going to a CMU is real. You know, throughout the Bureau of Prisons, they're kind of known as the terrorist units, even though that's not in their name. And, 
you know, certainly many people have been sent to these units that have nothing to do with terrorism. Um, and, and there's a couple different things that are operating here. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, it is essential to see um, the units as intended to isolate and segregate Muslims particularly. I think that's what the units were sort of created for initially. Um, when we look at information about um, sort of the first set of men who were sent to the units. Um, you know, what, what the government always says in response to this sort of like religious discrimination argument is, no, we're not targeting Muslims, we're just targeting terrorists, and terrorists happen to be Muslims, right? Um, that's, that's their response that they say all the time, ignoring, of course, the fact that, you know, we see terrorists from all sorts of different religious and racial groups, including, of course, white supremacists, etc. But anyway, even even looking at that, when we look at you know, the men who were, who were first sent to this unit, um, some of them had convictions or um, offense conduct that was related to international or domestic terrorism. But other of them were Muslims in the U.S. prison system who had absolutely nothing to do with terrorism, who were in prison for run-of-the-mill um, run crimes, you know, like burglary or assault, um, that were completely unrelated to terrorism. And they were sent to the communication management unit for violating um, prison rules about communications. Yet we know that, you know, thousands of people within the Bureau of Prisons violate one or two prison rules about communications over their years. It's, it's very common, you know. And yet the only people who are being sent to this unit for that are, are people who also happen to be Muslim. So the religious profiling aspect of this, I think, is really important, and, and that persists to this day. But I think you're right that it has grown larger than that, and that the units are also operating now basically as sort of many political prisoners, ways to silence prisoners whose politics feel dangerous and threatening to the Bureau of Prisons. And sometimes that's individuals who continue to advocate from inside about larger societal issues like the environment. Sometimes it's just about silencing people who advocate against the prison itself, who are, you know, jailhouse lawyers um, and other people who organize inside to demand that people in prison are, are treated humanely and that their rights are respected. So these CMUs have become sort of, you know, a place to dump anyone whose, whose views are undesirable or who the, the prison system wants to silence. Um, now, you asked about the stigma following people, um, and, and that's, that's real, and that's something we've seen just in terms of the way our clients were treated within the Bureau of Prisons after they were released from the CMU and, and finally transferred to other um, prison units. It, it felt clear to them that their communications were still being monitored um, much more aggressively than um, other folks who hadn't been in a CMU. Um, we know that many people have been sort of transferred out of a CMU and then sent back in um, because they continue to be sort of suspicious to the, to the prison administration, and so they're people who are going to be watched much more closely. Um, and then even when someone is released from prison altogether, you know, this communication management unit designation continues to, to follow them. 
Um, so, for example, our, our client, Kifa Jayusi, um, he's under a long term of supervised release. He's been released from prison, but is still under supervised release. Um, and he plans to ask his district court judge to lift the terms of his supervised release to get him some relief from that prolonged term. Um, but his judge, of course, when she considers that request, is going to look at his prison record and is going to see that, you know, he spent a fair amount of time in a communication management unit, and that suggests that he's a discipline problem, even though he was not. He had a perfectly clean disciplinary record. So, you know, this kind of information can follow someone. Um, and that's actually why we have asked the district court judge in our case to expunge all of the information about our clients that was generated through the flawed communication management unit um, uh, review um, and designation procedures. Because, you know, even though, you know, our clients are out of the unit now and, and out of prison, they still face potential consequences from this, uh, you know, deep um, constitutional violation that they've been experiencing for so long. Mm. The, the the other thing that I find quite hard to digest from the government's view of what the CMU should be is that um, actual terrorists, uh, violent um, terrorists that have bombed and injured many people, uh, they are actually not housed in the CMU, correct? They're housed in supermax facilities. And then also, just to the same point, this deprivation of physical contact with one's uh, loved ones, in, including one's children. And I understand that uh, some fathers had children that were born while they were inside and never had physical contact with their child, which um, it, it's just, it's so cruel. I don't see the security reason for it if they're constantly monitored and um, can even be searched before and after. There doesn't seem to be absolutely any security requirement for such a draconian effect than to demoralize the prison population and therefore to undermine all opposition within the prison system, right? And to that effect, for any activist to say, you might be prosecuted under a terrorism act and you also might go to a CMU if you're in prison. So you better not do anything um, just to ensure it. Maybe I'm paranoid. No, I think that's right. And I mean, thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, loved ones outside of prison, it, it is just so deeply cruel to prevent a child from hugging their dad, you know, to think that security requires that family members cannot, you know, sit at a table together and talk. Um, it, it, it's just, it's, it's deeply, deeply cruel. And, um, talking to the kids of, you know, um, some of these CMU prisoners over the years, that experience stays with them, you know, grow. I mean, it's hard enough for anyone to grow up with an incarcerated parent. I think that's always going to be, you know, an incredibly difficult, um, thing to get through, but, you know, phone calls do matter. Contact visits do matter. Um, we know that, you know, those ways to access one's loved ones, um, you know, not only are, are deeply important for the family members on the outside, but are also, you know, the biggest predictors of, of rehabilitation as opposed to recidivism. So it actually helps 
security, um, the security of the country in general, if we work to make sure that people in prison are rehabilitated, that they do maintain contact with their family members and their communities outside. That helps everyone, and to take away that, you know, that access or limit it so deeply, um, it, you know, it, it doesn't serve any security concern, um, and it's also just absolutely cruel to people on the outside. Yeah, I agree. It's it's incredibly cruel. I'd like now to discuss Turkmen versus Ashcroft, a suit you filed in 2002, challenging the detention and horrendous treatment of perceived Arab and Muslim immigrants for minor immigration infractions. May you please describe how the government used racial and religious profiling to detain these people and the horrible conditions they endured, including physical and verbal abuse? That's right. Yeah, so... Um Turkmen, the case arose out of the post-9-11 immigration detentions. So, you know, shortly after 9-11, um, Muslim, Arab, and South Asian men began sort of disappearing off the streets of New York and New Jersey. And, and this was happening all across the country, but it was really focused most in the New York, New Jersey area. Um, and we later learned that um, basically what was going on is this sort of joint program by the FBI, um, the NYPD, and at the time, the INS, right? INS doesn't exist anymore, but that's what the agency was called at the time, um, that, you know, every time a tip came in um, from a member of the public about 9-11, and of course, thousands and thousands of these tips were coming in, most of them based on religious and racial profiling, um, that any time those tips came in, they were all investigated, and in the course of investigating one of these tips, if um, the FBI identified an individual who fit the profile of the 9-11 hijackers, right, and that's sort of the religious, racial, ethnic profile of the hijackers, um, and was here in violation of the immigration law, so had a civil immigration violation, then they were arrested and held in connection to the terrorism investigation, held as if they were suspected terrorists even though the only actual information to connect them to terrorism was their religious and, and racial identity. Um, so quite a few of these men, dozens, um, almost 100, were held um, in the Metropolitan Detention Center in, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and there they were placed in um, what's called the Administrative Maximum Special Housing Unit. So it was this ultra-restrictive unit made even more restrictive for the 9-11 detainees where they were held in solitary confinement. They were denied all property in their cell, not even um, toilet paper or soap or toothbrush. Um, they were kept from contacting the outside world when their family members or lawyers tried to find out if they were at the jail or tried to visit them. Um, they were actually lied to and said, no, these men aren't here. Um, they were kept from practicing their religion. Um, they were physically and verbally abused repeatedly, beaten, called terrorists, threatened. Um, uh, and all of this as they were being investigated for any potential ties to terrorism. And then, of course, when months and months later, those investigations had finally sort of run their course and no one uh, arrested in this way was found to have any connection with 9-11, of course, um, they were removed from the country and deported. 
Um, so the Center for Constitutional Rights filed a class action lawsuit way back in 2002, challenging the detentions, um, the sort of equal protection violations that arose from placing someone in restrictive conditions of confinement based on religion, based on ethnicity, not because there's any reason to think they'd be dangerous. Um, and also just the conditions themselves, you know, um, the way in which these men were abused and placed in solitary confinement. Um, as a violation of the Constitution. Um, and we brought those claims both against the high-level architects of the 9-11 detention policy, so former Attorney General John Ashcroft, former Director of the FBI Robert Mueller, and former Commissioner of the INS James Ziegler, as well as officials at the Metropolitan Detention Center, the warden of the facility, um, supervisors at the facility, and some of the correctional officers who actually, you know, directly beat and, and abused our clients. Um, and that case, believe it or not, is still going on now, 17 years later, um, <laughs> which uh, I fear will make many of your listeners think that there's no point in litigation at all, but I don't think that's the answer. Um, you know, uh, the, the case has, has, has a long and complicated procedural history that I'm not going to bore everyone with. But I guess the biggest takeaways are that um, the case actually went up to the Supreme Court two years ago. Um, and um, uh, on the question of whether individuals whose rights are violated by federal officials can sue those federal officials individually for money damages. Um, strangely, there's not a statute um, in, in this country that allows people who have been injured by federal officials to, to sue them for money damages. Um, if a state official violates your constitutional rights, you can sue him under an important statute called Section 1983. Um, but there's no counterpart for unconstitutional actions by federal officials. Instead, there's a series of sort of important lawsuits that created precedent for um, the ability of people who'd been injured in that way to sue for money damages. Um, and the question that went up to the Supreme Court in our case in Turkmen, um, which was called Ziegler v. Abbasi when it went up to the Supreme Court for reasons I also won't bore people with, um, <laughs> you know, the question in that case was whether our clients who had been subjected to, you know, this unconst unconstitutional discrimination and treatment could actually bring these claims against the, the people who who allegedly created the policy that that led to them being treated this way. And, and the Supreme Court answered in the negative. It said no. It said, you know, that even people whose clearly established constitutional rights have been violated by high-level official policy, you know, can't sue the people who create that policy, that that would be, you know, too um, chilling to sort of federal officials who make government policy. Um, now, I think, you know, especially today, we can see um, really clearly why federal officials should be chilled if they're thinking about creating yeah. a policy that violates people's constitutional rights, right? Um, that's actually maybe one of the most important things that the court could do. And yet, um, you know, that's not how the, the Supreme Court saw it. Um, despite that really disappointing ruling and that really sort of troubling precedent that, that is out there to this day, um, the case continues. And that's because the Supreme Court remanded one of 
the claims in the case. Um, our claim that the warden of the Metropolitan Detention Center um, allowed the 9-11 detainees to be physically abused and verbally abused by guards um, and actually even sort of facilitated that abuse. Um, uh, that claim uh, is still um, uh, alive for the moment, um, and the court's deciding right now whether um, – individuals who've been damaged by that sort of unconstitutional action can bring an individual claim for damages against the warden um, of the facility where they were held. Um, so that's something to, you know, keep an eye out for. We should get a decision on that issue soon. You know, it, it is quite frightening that the Supreme Court decided that um, it would show federal officials uh, in the performance of their duties if they could be sued individually if they violated the Constitution. Because firstly, they should know the Constitution, and secondly, they should not violate the Constitution. So it is, um, it, it's really quite a terrible case, um, and it, it hasn't really received the media focus that it should for something so impactful to all yeah, of our rights. Right. And I think, you know, I, I, maybe part of the reason for that is that, you know, it's so procedurally complicated. It's so hard to explain, you know, what the issue even is, because, you know, actually at the Supreme Court, no one was arguing about whether or not what happened to the 9-11 detainees, detainees violated the Constitution. You know, that wasn't at issue, right? It's whether even if the Constitution is violated, an individual has, you know, what's called a cause of action to sue for damages. And this is just, you know, the kind of thing that's so nitty gritty, like in the weeds for lawyers that, um, you know, it's hard to really attract a lot of attention to the issue. But I think it is an absolutely, you know, essential thing for people to understand. And, you know, it's even worse than, just that, you know, federal officials can't be held accountable for violating the Constitution because we already have all of these forms of immunity, which are very well established in the law, to protect federal officials who violate the Constitution sort of by accident, right? So there's something called qualified immunity, which means that, you know, if a federal official violates the Constitution, um, but, you know, his or her actions were reasonable um, if they, you know, maybe didn't know that um, – what they were doing was unconstitutional, then they can't be held personally liable for, for money damages. Um, so qualified immunity already means that an individual whose constitutional rights have been violated cannot sue a federal official unless they violate clearly established constitutional rights, right? So it's this idea that, e that, that more protection is needed, that federal officials must be free to violate clearly established constitutional rights. I feel like you can trace, um, you know, that sort of idea in a direct line to, to where we are right now uh, under the Trump administration. And, um, you know, this is something that probably in the future is going to need a legislative fix. We need Congress to actually create um you know, the cause, a cause of action that would allow people to sue federal officials just as they can sue state officials when their rights are violated. Um, and that's something that's been a, a very long time coming. Mm. And um, b before we move on to um, our last topic, I just um, wanted to understand something in Turkmen. Um, so the government violated 
our international obligations by refusing to allow these men consular access. So they had absolutely no access to their consulate to try and uh, notify their consulate that they were held in detention. And um, did the government also tape attorney-client communication? So there was absolutely no attorney-client privilege. Is this something that also occurred? Yeah, that's right. Um, among the other sort of outrageous way that the detainees were treated, um, you know, for the first six weeks or so, um, uh, the men didn't have sort of any access to the outside world, no phone calls, no visits, no access to attorneys. As I said, even when attorneys came to visit them, they were turned away. Um, and this was sort of a policy for a total communications blackout. And then slowly some access to the outside world um, developed and, you know, the men had um, some ability to meet with attorneys. Um, but the prison had set up sort of a video camera right outside the attorney-client um, visitation rooms and were actually recording those conversations, which, you know, not only violates the Constitution, but all the sort of Bureau of Prisons regulations, um, which make it quite clear that you can't. Um, record uh, attorney-client communications. Um, so they were violating their own rules as well. You know, they were breaking all the rules in the post-9-11 um, period just based on this idea that, you know, anyone who um, was a Muslim non-citizen here in violation of the immigration law was potentially this incredibly dangerous terrorist. When, you know, there's the, it's nothing but sort of base discrimination and racism. Mm, which unfortunately seems to still continue. Yes. Yes. Well, when people aren't held accountable for it, I suppose, you know, the message is sent that it's okay. Right. Um, hence this uh, unfortunate Supreme Court decision as well. Um, yeah. So I'd like now to briefly turn to the Jailhouse Lawyer's Handbook, which the Center for Constitutional Rights co-authors and co-publishers with the National Lawyers Guild, and which you are an editor of. May you please tell our audience about the book and its use? Sure. Um, so as you said, the Jailhouse Litigation Handbook, uh, the Jailhouse Lawyer's Handbook, is um, kind of like a do-it-yourself legal guide. So you know, as we talk about all of these ways in which um, people in prison are experiencing violations of, of their rights, um, you know, there aren't enough lawyers who do work representing people in prison. Um, the work is, it's hard and it, it doesn't tend to pay very well. So, you know, there's just nowhere near enough lawyers doing this kind of work. And instead we see lots of people in prison sort of stepping up and studying the law themselves and litigating cases on their own and and helping um, their friends um, and others inside to stand up for their own rights. So our goal with the Jailhouse Lawyers Handbook was really to provide kind of a roadmap, an introduction to the law for people who think that their rights might have been violated in prison um, but don't have a lawyer um, to help them sort of think through the issues. So it's a book that we'll send to anyone who writes us a letter requesting it, um, and we lay out kind of what rights people in prison have under the Constitution, um, different sort of procedures to file a, a federal lawsuit to challenge violations of your rights in prison, um, and some information just about how lawsuits work in general and how to do legal research. So our, our thought is that, you know, the law, the law should operate in a way that people whose rights are violated can understand um, 
the remedies that they have access to can go to court on their own and, and stand up for their own rights. They shouldn't have to have a lawyer to do it for them. Yet the law has become so complicated um, that it's incredibly difficult um, to file a pro se lawsuit, a lawsuit on your own without a lawyer. Um, and our goal with this free handbook is to just level the playing field a little bit, give people the information they need to start you know, standing up for, for themselves um, and and seeking justice in the courts. So now I briefly want to address um, one case where the Center for Constitutional Rights was a plaintiff rather than um, the uh, the attorney. Now, um, the Center for Constitutional Rights, along with the National Lawyers Guild, your co-author and co-publisher of the Jailhouse Lawyers Handbook, sued the Virginia Department of Corrections when it banned the Jailhouse Lawyers Handbook. Hmm, I wonder why they banned it. <laughs> um, what, what was the ostensible reason uh, that they gave and um, what was the outcome of the case? And have you, have you had to litigate any other cases or do anything further where you where you've been notified that there's been a restriction to this invaluable resource for prisoners? Yeah. Um, so that's the only actual litigation that's come out of it, though we have had to sort of threaten litigation in a few other states, if, if I recall correctly. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely outrageous. I mean, it, I think that the explanation given was that it was somehow detrimental to institution security for, for prisoners to know their rights. Um, and, and I mean, certainly it's detrimental to institutional control, I guess, for people to understand their rights. But that should be the point, right? Because control can't be unfettered. Um, even when someone is in prison, they have rights. Um, it's not like the prison system can just do whatever it wants to them. Um, so, you know, this was an, an, ex an example of a prison system just, you know, completely overblowing, um, security concerns because the idea of people, you know, um, standing up for themselves is threatening in itself, you know, that that's sort of scary in some ways to these systems that demand absolute control. Um, the case settled rather quickly. Um, the, yeah. the prison system acknowledged that it, that um, prisoners should have access to the handbook. Um, and I think one of the really nice things that came out of the settlement was um, the prison system guaranteed that it would it would keep copies of the jailhouse lawyer's handbook um, in each of its prison libraries. Um, so that, you know, even prisoners who hadn't reached out to us directly and didn't have their own copies of the handbook could get it in the prison library, um, which is a great outcome. And, you know, it'd be wonderful if, if more prison systems could, could stock the handbook in, in their libraries as well, because really it's in everybody's interest for individuals to know what their rights are. Oh, yeah. And, and not just uh, in prison, but Certainly in prison when your rights are curtailed and you are under the control of, well, the, the prison security system, but you continue to, well, you continue to be a human and you continue to have rights. It is just an invaluable resource um, that you have provided for prisoners. And finally, every case that uh, we have discussed today has been about really the terrorization of activism in this country. And as a constitutional lawyer, how do you see the steps that we have to take as activists, as citizens, as attorneys to fight back and stop this terrorization? Because that's really what's happening here. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the the short answer is just that we cannot allow ourselves to be silenced. And 
you know, I think there's room in in all of these different movements for people to stand up in the ways that they feel comfortable. Um, many folks are going to feel like the way to stand up right now is going to big protests, and that's a wonderful thing to do. If that's not what feels comfortable to, to you, that's not the only way you can get involved. You know, there is such a, a wide range of ways that, that we can all stand up, that we can stand in solidarity with each other to ensure that, um, you know, that, that we're being the most effective and that um, sort of uh, all different voices are being heard and welcomed at the table. Um, and in some ways, you know, that's kind of uh, one of the most optimistic things I feel about the moment that we are in right now. Um, I've been at the Center for Constitutional Rights since 2002, so since shortly after 9-11. Um, and it did feel in those early days of my legal career like this terrorizing of dissent was sort of working, that people were feeling chilled and silenced and that our movements were you know, on the defense. Um, and it doesn't feel like that to me today. It feels like we have an incredibly motivated, outspoken, you know, fearless um, uh, left in this country who are learning the important lesson of taking leadership from communities of color, from impacted communities, are learning the important lesson about our movement standing in solidarity with each other and not allowing um, uh, divisions to occur, and, and that all of this activism um, is, uh, you know, is, is just feels so urgent right now. Um, and it, it, it gives me some hope, you know, that it gives me some hope that things will be better. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's always that unintended consequence, right? And since we've had uh, a president so avidly hell-bent on infringing people's rights and destroying the environment and so forth. The media, who, um, in my opinion, were very deferential to previous presidents, they've uh, taken their role as uh, the watchdog, which, you know, is, is a great thing. And I hope that we'll continue with whomever the next president is. A lot of people that were politically apathetic before were um, also radicalized, uh, incentivized to to protest. So um, that has been a win, right? And also, I think we have to be positive, right? I mean, otherwise, we've lost. <laughs> that's right. Um, there's nothing to do but feel hopeful and continue fighting. So that's what we have to do. I agree. Rachel, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to discuss your cases and your so very important work um, in depth uh, and provide this valuable insight to our audience. Uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. It's so wonderful to have the opportunity to talk about all these different pieces of work we do, which, you know, we, we tend to talk about in isolation more. So I, I really appreciate this conversation. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.